Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome today's host, Vinet Thakur, lecturer in international relations at the Institute of History at Leiden University and board member of the EISA. Hello, my name is Vinit Thakur and I'm the host today for our first chat on the What Is series for the EISA. The What Is series is targeted primarily at helping with classroom studying and teaching and clarifying key theories, concepts, themes, issues in international relations. And to help us think these through, we'll have some of the leading scholars of the discipline to discuss and elaborate on these ideas and their own contributions to advancing our understanding of these ideas. And today, we're discussing what is liberalism. As much as we're excited to start this series, we are even more chuffed at who we have as our first speaker, Professor Beata Yan. There is a good chance that if you have ever read anything on liberalism in your IR course syllabi, you're quite familiar with Professor Jan, who is a professor and the head of Department of IR at the University of Sussex. She's published far too much for me to list, but if I could just refer to her most recent piece, and a piece that I enjoyed reading so much, it's a piece published in the European Journal of International Relations, and it's titled Critical Theory in Crisis, a Reconsideration. I won't reveal much of what is in it, but I will just say that I've prepared a list of people on my email who are going to receive this piece because in the past they've asked me the question, what is the policy relevance of critical theory? So among the host of other things that uh, Beata has done, she was also the president and I must say a very popular president of the EISA until recently. Beata, thanks very much for accepting our invitation and a very warm welcome once again to an EISA platform. Thank you so much. That's uh, a very generous introduction, Vinit. Let me start off then with a sort of a biographical question. Um, how did you come to study liberalism? It was actually the political experience after the end of the Cold War that motivated me to study liberalism. The end of the Cold War was accompanied by tremendous excitement and liberal triumphalism. You may remember Francis Fukuyama, who famously announced that we had now reached the end of history and that liberalism had basically provided or was able to provide all the political and social uh, solutions necessary to humanity. Um, and this kind of belief uh, was quickly translated into liberal foreign and international policies. So the 1990s were characterized by neoliberal economic policies, free trade, privatization, deregulation, conditional aid, and so on. Uh, there was democracy promotion, which was pursued by dim diplomatic, economic, even by military means. And the 1990s also witnessed what one might call the invention of humanitarian intervention. So the threat of military intervention in order to protect people from serious human rights violations. 
So these were the core features of uh, the liberal world order. And I found this really problematic for two reasons. The first uh, reason is that all these policies depended on and were exacerbating hierarchies. Poor countries in the global south were forced to adopt economic rules that benefited rich countries. The same is true for democracy promotion, which basically provided democracies with more rights than other states. There were very serious suggestions at the time to set up a club of liberal states to overrule the Security Council. Even the idea of humanitarian intervention clearly entails such hierarchies, because although all countries in the world, to some extent, violate human rights, the threat to intervene in other countries to protect human rights could, of course, only emanate from militarily powerful states. If the U.S. tortures prisoners or the Europeans violate the rights of the refugees, they do not actually face the threat of military intervention. So my first concern was that these policies really contributed to the establishment of some kind of new imperialism um, in, in the international system. And this was also quite openly discussed, actually, at the time and advocated by politicians and academics alike. So the claim that if people could not govern themselves decently, which meant in a liberal way, uh, they needed to be governed by outsiders was quite common. My second concern was that these policies stood actually in contradiction to the values and norms they were supposedly serving. So free trade is not free at all if African states are forced to open their markets while European states subsidize agriculture. Similarly, democracy is supposed to uh, ensure that the government is established by the free will of the people, but this is of course not the case if that kind of government is established by outsiders. Um, and military means surely are as likely to violate human rights as they are to protect them. So in short, I was worried that these policies would actually generate resistance and conflict and inequality and injustice rather than peace and prosperity. And that's what uh, made me study uh, liberalism and liberal internationalism. Thanks, Pieter. Um At some level, liberalism seems to be a deceptively simple idea, that it's about individual freedom. But at the same time, it's employed in so many ways that it becomes impossible to say what exactly it means, you know, in political tradition, in economic ideology, in social understandings, in polemical attacks today. Liberalism seems to be many things to many people, uh, to the extent that it is difficult at times to convey to students in the classroom what exactly liberalism is. So before we come to IR versions of liberalism, could you please historicize the term for us? Uh, when was the term, for instance, first used in the modern sense? And historically, what are some of the key ideas that underpin liberalism? Yes, it is actually complicated. The term itself stems from Latin, uh, liber, which means free. And it was originally applied to all kinds of things, positive and negative. And we sometimes still do these kinds of things. We say liberal use of language, for example, which this simply means free or unconstrained use of language. It takes on its political connotation following the Enlightenment and the French Revolution. So really, at the beginning of the 19th century, the term liberal or liberalism is applied to certain parties and policies. But the ideas that come to be embodied in those parties and policies are much older, actually. Liberalism, unlike Marxism, which has Marx as a founder, if you like, doesn't have a founder. 
But one of the earliest systematic expositions of liberal ideas can be found in John Locke. Locke started from the assumption that all human beings were born free and then argued that in order to uphold this freedom, to realize it throughout a person's life, society had to be based on two core institutions. The first was the right to private property, because a person needed food and shelter to survive. And if they were dependent on other people for these material foundations of life, then they would not be free. The second institution was government by consent, or what we would call democracy today. In order to stay free, Locke argued people had to consent to the decisions of government, otherwise they would live under despotism, tyranny, and freedom. So for Locke, crucially, these three ideas hang together, and they are mutually constitutive. Private property establishes individual freedom, materially, if you like. Individual freedom requires the government by consent, the democracy, and the most important task of that government is to protect private property. So Locke ended up with this really neat circle in which these core ideas of liberalism hang together. And I think this is often overlooked when people distinguish between different forms of liberalism. Okay, then the protection of private property, democracy, and individual rights are all kind of things that characterize domestic rights, uh, domestic regimes, or domestic constitutions. Now, how do we get from there to international versions of liberalism? Now, I mean, as you know, liberal theory in IR also has many variants. You know, there's this, there are Kantian versions of democratic peace theory, both monadic and dyadic. There are discussions about liberal internationalism as a world order. Uh, and then there are institutional ver versions from functionalism to neoliberal institutionalism and plenty more within its subdisciplines such as the IPE. So and a key assumption behind all of them seems to be that liberalism is essentially benign, profit-making and peacemaking. And when seemingly malignant events and features of world politics such as imperialism, wars, depressions have happened, they are either excesses of the system that were insufficiently liberal or that liberal systems weren't equipped to handle them. So, so my question to you then is, how do we move from this domestic uh, understanding of liberalism to its international variants? Actually, um, international versions of liberalism are really just an extension of these basic Lockean principles into the international sphere. Democratic peace theory entails the basic idea that democracy embodies the freedom of the citizens who have absolutely nothing to gain from war. That's the argument that Kant made. So democracies are expected to conduct relatively peaceful foreign policies, especially in relations with each other. And consequently, if all governments were democracies, then we would have world peace. Liberal economic theories entail the belief that private property is more productive than common property and that free markets actually lead to the most efficient production at the cheapest prices. So extending free trade and free markets into the international sphere is expected to produce general prosperity and economic exchange and cooperation, basically trade rather than war. Normative liberal theories take the domestic protection of individual freedom through the rule of law and pursue it in the international sphere in the form of human rights. And this, in turn, of course, implies private property and government by consent for democracy, which is all stuff that is written into the human rights. 
So although these theories appear rather different, some of them focusing on, on the economy, others on regime type, and yet others on norms, rights, laws, and institutions, they ultimately actually hang together just in the way in which Locke argued. We don't, for example, call a state that is capitalist but lacks democracy and human rights, like Singapore, liberal. Just as little as we call states with democratic elections but without the protection of individual rights, like Russia, liberal. Nor are states in which human rights are largely protected but that lack democracy, think of Hong Kong under British rule, for example, you know, liberal. So these theories actually share the basic assumption that private property, free trade, democracy, and human rights are mutually constitutive. And there is the second issue uh, that all these liberal theories share, namely, as you said, that they all promise solutions to war, violence, poverty, inequality, injustice. They offer peace, prosperity, and freedom instead. And this is why peace building and state building operations, for example, usually aim to introduce liberal market democracies in target countries. The idea being, if you introduce those kinds of systems, those kinds of regimes and, and economic systems, then you will get peace automatically out of it. Thanks for clarifying that, Beata. Um, okay, now coming to your own work, uh, because in contrast to some of these claims about liberalism, um, You've, you've constantly argued that imperialism, war, economic depression are themselves very much features of the liberal system. If I get it right, you understand liberalism and international war as consequences of domestic liberal peace. Uh, they are, in fact, conditions of domestic peace, you've argued. So could you please elaborate on this? Yes. Uh, when Locke first argued for a political constitution based on individual freedom, private property and government by consent, he soon came up against a fundamental problem. And that was that only a small section of the population actually had private property. The rest made their living by either by using common property, like you graze your sheep on common land, or by working on someone else's property. In other words, most of the people were not free at all in the liberal sense, and therefore most of them also had no interest in protecting private property. And so you could actually not introduce equal political rights because these people would have chosen things that weren't liberal, right? So Locke solved this problem by denying political rights to non-property owners and by advocating colonialism. Let me talk about the latter colonialism first. You could send uh, the poor people that didn't have property, right, into the colonies where they could appropriate property from the indigenous populations. And this did not only turn those individuals into liberal property owners, that is, people with an interest in the protection of private property, but also meant that budding liberal states were able to export the internal contradictions of liberalism. They literally exported political problems in the form of poor people, orphans, criminals, and so on, into the colonies. And they imported from the colonies the economic benefits that stem from stealing other people's land, labor, and resources. Basically, this produced a distinction between the domestic and the international political sphere. Liberal principles were to be realized in the domestic sphere, while the international arena was characterized by power politics. 
where one fights against indigenous populations as well as against colonial competitors. The entire history of liberalism is actually characterized by two simultaneous principles, by privatization and expropriation, by the extension of political rights and the denial of political rights. Throughout most of its history, liberalism extended political rights to property-holding individuals only and denied political rights to others. It extended political rights to men, but not to women, to white people, but not to black people, and it extended international political rights, that is the right to sovereignty and non-intervention, to European powers only, and it denied this right to non-European peoples. Throughout its entire history, every act of appropriation or privatization entails an act of expropriation. When liberal governments today privatize public transport, they take away the common property of the people, of the public, and give it to private individuals. And when they occupy a piece of land in America or Australia or elsewhere, they simultaneously deprive the indigenous population of this land and its resources. Yet these contradictions could be wonderfully hidden by separating domestic from international politics. This allowed the liberals to uphold liberal norms at home and to violate them abroad, and to hide the fact that these international wars and violations actually produced the spoils that allowed the economic and political development at home. What is more, this separation between the domestic and the international allowed liberals to blame the victims of European oppression and exploitation for these policies. The liberal philosophy of history actually holds that it is the fault of the Indians who were not developed enough to govern themselves that forced the British to establish colonial rule over them. This is what John Stuart Mill argued. And if capitalism produces inequality and poverty in Africa today, rather than the promised prosperity, then according to the World Bank, this is the fault of backward African cultures. And if the United States and its allies fight an aggressive war against Iraq today, this is the fault of the Iraqis and their lack of democracy. But I should say that while the separation between the domestic and the international sphere is extremely useful politically and ideologically, this does not mean, of course, that the domestic sphere was thoroughly ruled by liberal principles. On the contrary, domestic populations, workers, women, slaves, were all deprived of rights and common property, and this produced uh, rebellions and revolutions quite frequently, actually, in the history of liberalism. And it was only the threat of revolution that led liberal forces in the 19th century to make compromises. So in Britain, for example, they began to introduce factory regulation, which uh, limited sort of the exploitation of workers to some extent in Germany. They began to introduce welfare policies and things like that. And these forms of redistribution were paid for by the profits made abroad. But still, it took the First World War and the revolutions following the First World War to force governments to introduce universal male suffrage. And it took them even longer to give women the right to vote. And none of the populations in the colonies got the vote at all. They continued to provide the economic, cultural and political benefits that allowed the working classes to be integrated into the liberal system and to give them a stake in it. 
So if we understand this domestic international divide as the safety valve of liberalism, as the means by which it could export internal problems and import external benefits, then we can see why the entire liberal world order today is in trouble. Because globalization, the porousness of borders, makes this separation impossible. Suddenly, people in liberal states experience, instead of the import of economic benefits, the export of investment and jobs. And instead of the export of political problems, the import of refugees, migrants, terrorists, and so on. So I would argue in some that these contradictions of liberalism, its production of freedom and oppression, of riches and poverty, have their roots in one fundamental problem. The entire liberal system is based on the abstract assumption that human beings are equal and free. In reality, however, human beings are not equal and free. And this forces liberalism to first establish its own preconditions, to adjust reality to its theory, to produce free and liberal individuals that then subsequently are expected to behave in a liberal way. And liberalism has a whole arsenal of carrots and sticks, if you like, from education, aid and trade, to blackmail, conquest and military force to achieve this end. Unfortunately, these policies stand in contradiction to liberal principles themselves and therefore produce resistance, which liberals in turn attribute to illiberal political, economic and cultural identity, who therefore have to be more forcefully subjected to these policies. This is what I've called the tragedy of liberal diplomacy, that liberalism constantly produces its own enemies. And this is why the biggest threat to liberalism today does not actually come from outsiders, from rogue states or communists or people like that. It comes from populations and liberal states themselves. Another problem with liberalism seems to be its canon. You know, the liberal canon seems to be overly populated with Western men. And most books on liberalism, including of its critics, tend to focus almost entirely on the sleeve Western men. And this legacy, as you've just elaborated, is complicated by liberalism's collusion with slavery, colonialism, imperialism, and so on. In the post-Cold War era, too, the tragedy of liberal peace, to paraphrase from a title of one of your pieces, and you just mentioned it, um, the tragedy is that it is neither liberal nor pacific. And given all this, uh, and this is a question I often get after teaching your works, which can be very bleak on liberalism to the extent that I have to give them Eikenberry for therapy. <laughs> Do you think that uh, liberalism is still redeemable? Uh, are there versions of liberalism, Western, non-Western, post-Western, indigenous or any other, uh, which are more benign? Okay, let me say first of all that I don't actually accuse liberals of malign intentions. I'm entirely convinced that most liberals have perfectly benign motivations. They really do want to produce peace, prosperity, and respect for all people. And they pursue this goal, I think, in a perfectly rational way. They say to themselves, I am sitting in Spain or Australia, and I have a pretty good life. I'm materially well off. I trust that the laws of my state will protect me from serious violations of my rights and I have not had to fight a single war in my entire life. And they conclude quite rightly that it is the liberal economic and political constitution of their states that provides these benefits, and that spreading these political and economic institutions to other parts of the world 
will therefore also spread the benefits of peace, prosperity, and human rights to other parts of the world and other peoples. The problem with this is not the wrong motivation. The problem is the wrong analysis. In, it's the methodological nationalism of this understanding of the situation. It starts from the assumption that the state that produces all these benefits, Australia or Spain, has always been there and that it is itself the source of liberal achievements. But this is, of course, not true at all. Every square meter of Australia, with all its resources, not so long ago belonged to the indigenous population from which it was taken by force. And for the constitution of the modern Spanish state, culturally, economically, politically, the conquest of America is absolutely crucial. All the good things that Australia or Spain offer their population are not just the result of internal development. They are the result of international, including imperial relations. And there is no liberalism that is untainted by this history, in my opinion. But I do think that facing this history and confronting the internal contradictions of liberalism does provide us with the opportunity to break the tragic cycle of having to reproduce them all the time. So we could, for example, demand that democracy is not reduced to the political sphere, to elections for public representatives, but also to the economic sphere, that workers actually get a vote in running companies. We could also demand that whatever benefits we extend to our own population has to be respected as well in other countries. Such policies, I think, would certainly lead to some kind of change or reform of what we now know as liberalism. Whether it would still be liberalism, I don't know. But if it makes a positive change, then it really does not matter so much what we call it, I think. In, in one of your recent pieces, Vieta, um, which was, I think, published in International Affairs, uh, but importantly, it was published before the pandemic, uh, you had argued that uh, democratic international is possible only when there's a systemic threat. And then the pandemic happened. And when I teach this to my students, this question is, uh, I always get this question, uh, that whether the pandemic was that crisis or threat. Uh, but more broadly, as we move into a post-pandemic world, hopefully soon, uh, how do you assess the prospects of the liberal international order? Okay, I do think uh, that the relative peace and prosperity that liberal uh, states experienced internally during the Cold War was in many ways made possible by the threat of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union emerged from the Second World War as a superpower that offered an alternative to liberal capitalism, namely communism, that supported communist revolutions abroad and that engaged in a military standoff with the West. So if ruling liberal elites at the time wanted to avoid a communist revolution at home, and be prepared, if necessary, to defend the liberal system militarily, they had to make sure that their populations actually had a stake in the liberal system, that they were economically and politically better off than populations in communist states, and that they would be ready to defend the system. This produced bipartisan support for welfare policies or redistribution more generally, as well as for the protection of individual and political rights in America, for example. But this changed dramatically, I think, with the end of the Cold War. When the Soviet Union imploded and communism suddenly did not any longer appear to be a political or military threat. 
So liberal elites had no need any longer to appease their own populations with economic or political compromises. They felt safe to dismantle the welfare state, or in the American example also to discourage voting, especially as we now see for black populations. So now the question is, is the pandemic such a systemic threat? Does it produce the kind of pressures that lead to a renewed commitment to liberalism with a humane face, if you like? I absolutely do not think so, for two main reasons. First, the pandemic is not really an international threat. It's a transnational or global threat in principle to all people everywhere. So while it has led to some closing of borders and more inward-looking policies and nationalist policies, um, including some cooperation within states between mainstream parties, these are not really a solution to the problem. In a globalized economy, it simply is not possible for one state to totally close itself off from the outside and then conquer the virus on the inside. I think even North Korea didn't manage to do that, although they truly tried. <laughs> um, but the second reason is much more important. The pandemic is, if you like, not a political threat. It does not arise from a particular political system. It does not threaten any kind of political system directly. And it does not offer an alternative political system. I think it is largely experienced as a technical challenge, hence the prominent voice of scientists, uh, from medics to statisticians. And inasmuch as it has political implications, these actually go more in the opposite direction, in the direction of political fragmentation, Yeah, with uh, virulent objections to vaccinations or mask wearing on one side of the political spectrum and the embrace of these policies on the other. More broadly, what are the prospects of the liberal world order now? I do not actually think that the social sciences are equipped to make predictions, and so I'm not going to make a prediction at all about this. Instead, what I would say is that the future of the liberal world order very much depends on what we make of it. Some of the core features of that world order are, of course, still all around us. Capitalism, the ideas of political freedom and democracy, Lots of multilateral institutions, they're all there. The future of the liberal world order, I would say, depends on whether we can stop these institutions from undermining liberal principles and promises. Whether we can get capitalism, for example, to spread material benefits more widely. Whether we can honor the promise of freedom by not imposing particular policies on other countries and whether we can use these multilateral institutions to cooperate as equals. I think the question really is whether and in how far we can get these features to actually deliver on what liberalism promises. And finally, Beata, what would be your recommendations to students on some works on liberalism? And could you also briefly explain why these works are important? Okay, I like to think about literature in terms of its function. So if you're looking for an overview over the theory, history, and practice of liberal internationalism in the spirit in which I've just set it out today, then obviously my own book uh, on the subject from 2013 called Liberal Internationalism is a good starting point. Sorry for being so immodest, but that's just <laughs> obviously I wouldn't have written the book if I didn't think it covered these issues. Um, 
But if you're interested in looking more closely at the classical writers that have been important in the formulation and justification of liberalism, including quite prominently also in its entanglement with colonialism and imperialism, I recommend two authors. One is John Locke and his two treaties of government. And here in particular, I would draw your attention to the second treaties and to the first few chapters, especially the chapter on property is absolutely crucial, I believe, uh, to liberalism. The second author I would mention is John Stuart Mill, who played a crucial role in theorizing liberalism in the 19th century and who also worked for the East India Company and consistently defended British colonialism. Most important amongst his works are his considerations on representative government, and he also has a much shorter piece called A Few Words on Non-Intervention, which is very helpful um, to see these liberal arguments for colonialism. Now, if you're interested in mainstream IR positions on the fate of liberal internationalism today, the two most important authors are G. John Eikenberry in defense of liberalism and John Mearsheimer criticizing it. Eikenberry has been defending liberalism throughout his entire career. So following the development and changes of his arguments over time is actually interesting itself. But his latest book is called A World Saved for Democracy. That's from 2020 and would sort of be the latest uh, version of this argument. Mearsheimer is equally consistent in criticizing this position from a realist perspective. And his latest book is called The Great Delusion from 2018. And he has an article also in Security Studies in 2019, which is called Bound to Fail, the Rise and Fall of the Liberal International Order. And finally, if you're interested in the current crisis of the liberal world order, this, of course, is very widely discussed and not yet concluded. <laughs> and so if you want to assess the different takes on what went wrong here and get a sense of what future expectations people have, then I think it's a good idea to look into special issues of journals on this subject. And I'll just mention two here. The first is a special issue of international affairs entitled Ordering the World, Liberal Internationalism in Theory and Practice that was published in 2018. And the other is a special anniversary issue of international organization from 2021, so very recent, and that is entitled Challenges to the Liberal World Order. And I think with that literature, uh, you have a pretty good a starting point for studying liberalism. Thank you, Beata. I, I was going to mention your book anyways, uh, because uh, I think it's it's sort of an instant classic in IR. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, but thank you very much in general for this fascinating conversation and for your scholarship, which I think allows for a more holistic assessment of liberal theory in IR. Thank you very much again. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and hosts in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible.